Hello and welcome back to the Yeshua Judaism series of podcasts. We ended part A, this will be part 9, part 9 in our discussion of oral Torah, proof of its legitimacy and necessity, and we ended we ended off in part 8 discussing premise number 3. Premise number 3 is that the New Testament supports and is itself a small presentation of some basic oral Torah. And within part 8, we were involved in a discussion of a conversation between Yeshua and some Sadducees, as recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22. And I want to make some clarifications regarding the comments that I made relative to those passages. You may recall that I pointed out how it showed evidence that Yeshua himself supported the study of Old Torah. Now, what I did is I... is there was a question asked by the Pharisees. I'll go ahead and just read it. Matthew chapter 22, verse 23 through 30 from the NET. The same day, Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and father children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The second did the same, and the third down to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had married her. Yeshua answered them, You are deceived, because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. For in the resurrection they, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And then I compared Yeshua's, and that ends the quote from the gospel, then I compared Yeshua's statement to a statement within oral Torah which says, quote, Our sages said, In the world to come, which is roughly equivalent to the Christian idea of heaven, in the world to come, there is neither eating nor drinking nor bathing nor anointment nor sex, end quote. And obviously, with you know, no sex, there's no marriage. There's no intercourse between a man and a woman in the world to come. Now, I also want to point out, the world to come, okay, is not the messianic era. It's not the, the period of the reign of Messiah, which will be an earthly rule, okay? That is a totally different time. The world to come, come is after the reign of Messiah on earth, all right? Within Judaic thought, the world to come, which in Hebrew is Olam Haba, refers to the true beginning of eternal life. It is eternal life, and it occurs after the earthly rule of Messiah, which itself occurs after his return. So you have the return of Messiah, then you have the Messianic reign of Messiah for a period of time, then after that begins the world to come, Olam Haba, eternity. So this is referring to that period of time after the earthly reign of Messiah, all right? That needs to be clarified as well, that we're talking about a period of time after earthly habitation of mankind, okay, that occurs during the reign of Messiah. All right, so then I pointed out how Messiah's answer, particularly saying that there will be no, uh, man will not be married, there will be no marriage in the world to come, parallels what is found within oral Torah, and I pointed out how 
that particular aspect of his answer that Yeshua gave, I ask, how did Yeshua know that? Where does Yeshua get that information? Because as far as I know, and I may be wrong, and again, I asked then and I asked now, if, if, if someone knows of passages that refer to this specific issue, please email me and let me know of them. Because I, I have searched and I cannot find any passages in the Tanakh, which is sadly called the Old Testament by Christianity, I haven't found anything that discusses how in the world to come that people, man and woman, will not be married. There will be no marriages. I, I haven't seen that anywhere. But it is found within Judaism's oral Torah. You will find it there. I, I gave a quote, one quote. There's actually other quotes. There's other locations which pretty much say the same thing, where the sages did know this. The sages did teach this within oral Torah. So what I said was that because of that, you see a, a parallel between Yeshua's answer and what's found in oral Torah. And therefore, it shows that oral Torah is legitimate, at least that particular aspect of oral Torah, because that's the only place Yeshua could have obtained it. Now, obviously, as I said, Yeshua knew everything. Yeshua was fully empowered by God. He was Messiah ben Yosef at that time. He will return as Messiah ben David. I'll discuss that in other podcasts. And Messiah ben Yosef is a, the most renowned Torah scholar ever, okay, ever. So Yeshua probably did know this himself and didn't have to reference oral Torah to learn it. But it still is present in oral Torah and not present in the written Torah. Therefore, Yeshua was implicitly endorsing oral Torah. Now, he also, that is Yeshua, also talked about how that uh, I, I believe he was referring when he says you do not know the scriptures or the power of the, or the power of God. He was no doubt also referring to the fact that Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. And yet you can see very strong hints of resurrection within the Tanakh, within the written Torah. So I'm sure, I shouldn't say sure, but I'm fairly sure that when he said you do not know the scriptures, he was also referring to that, that the Sadducees obviously were not aware of the many passages, primarily within the prophets and also within Psalms and other locations, where the resurrection is clearly shown to be an actual authentic event that will occur. It is found in the written Torah. And the Sadducees, if they knew Torah, if they read their Tanakh, would have known that. So that was also, I'm sure, one of the reasons for Yeshua's mild rebuke when he said, you were, you were deceived because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. And I wanted to clarify that also because people, I'm sure, will jump on me and say, well, no, Yeshua was talking about the resurrection. He wasn't talking about the marriage. Well, he was talking about both. And yes, it could be that regarding the resurrection, you don't need oral Torah because it's found in the Tanakh. It's there. But regarding the issue of marriage in Olam Haba, now again, not in the Messianic era, but in Olam Haba, the world to come, which, which is begun after the Messianic era, that issue is nowhere to be found as far as I know, within the, within the Tanakh. Yet Yeshua still knew it, and so did the sages of Judaism 
in their oral Torah. It is in their oral Torah. Therefore, since it's not found in the written Torah, how did the sages know that? They knew it because it is one of the teachings within the verbal teachings that were transferred from Moses. It is one of the teachings within the oral Torah that is not written down in the actual written Torah or within the Tanakh, again, the Old Testament. It's not there. It's not there. So the only way they would have known it is from oral Torah. So that was my point uh, in part eight, in my conclusion in part eight. That was what I was trying to say. It's because of that implicit parallel between Yeshua's reply and what you find in the oral Torah Yeshua was implicitly endorsing oral Torah. That was my point. However, even if you reject that, even if you reject that argument, that's fine. Because frankly, there's not a whole lot in as regarding uh, actual words from Yeshua that you can find in the New Testament. And the Gospels generally, they're parallels, and they many of them, like Matthew and Luke and even Mark, there's a lot of the same things said, there's just not a lot of material that you can look at to see parallels to oral Torah among what Yeshua said. But there's a lot of material among what, say, the Apostle Paul said or what the other apostles said. There's a lot of other material in the epistles and in the book of Acts from which one can see endorsement of oral Torah within the New Testament. And that is where we pick up now. Because now I'm going to discuss some more examples of how the Apostle Paul is clearly showing endorsement of oral Torah. And it will be regarding the issue of Apostle Paul's teachings of food offered to idols. And so basically, as an example, another example of oral Torah being presented in the New Testament, I will use the Apostle Paul's, or Shaul's, rather extensive discussion of food offered to idols that is found within the first epistle to the Corinthians. I present this specific example in part because of the widespread confusion and incorrect interpretation of the Apostle Paul's intention regarding this issue that can be found within contemporary Christian teachings. I mean, Christianity generally, completely, absolutely, totally misses the point that Paul was wishing to make. They grossly misinterpret what Paul was trying to convey in that letter to the Corinthians. And it is also used, that is, the... Uh, the false interpretations is, is, is often used and agreed with by anti-Paulist, and they do that to allegedly prove that Paul were, was promoting teachings that were anti-Tor. And anti-Paulist basically are people who believe Paul was teaching against the Tor. They believe that because just like Christians, they don't know Tor themselves, particularly oral Tor, and they're too ignorant to be able to properly interpret the Apostle Paul's epistles, just as are most Christian leaders. As you will see, the Apostle Paul's statements align almost perfectly with the established teachings from oral Torah regarding food offered to idols. The anti-Paulists are wrong, 
and so are Christians who follow the foolish, Torah-ignorant, similar path of Antipolist. The only real difference in Paul's teachings and those found within rabbinic Judaism's oral Torah regarding food offered to idols is the perspective from which the teaching is presented. The Apostle Paul approaches it from a more simplistic perspective due to the fact that among those to whom he was writing were individuals less schooled in the Torah halakha or commandments, some of whom may have still had remnants of Gentile pagan errors in their faith. So Paul had to basically talk down on their level. He had to lower himself, not being not denigrating them, but just by way of communication, he had to lower themselves to their level of Torah understanding and basically like teaching kindergarten students, you might say. Paul was was a, was a eminent PhD. You might, might equate it to him being an eminent PhD scholar, but now he's going to have to teach something to kids in kindergarten or maybe the first or second grade. So he's, he's having to be very simplistic in the way he, he addresses it. The Apostle Paul's approach was to emphasize the absurd and unbiblical idea of worshiping idols, along with the need to consider the conscience of other people who may be influenced due to their misunderstandings of Torah or our failure to properly avoid accidentally giving them the wrong message through our actions. You can see this in how he appeals to basic concepts of the senseless worship of idols and how even our eating habits carry a message to those who may be influenced by the most mundane things, such as what we eat. So he's applying it, he's, he's basically saying, talking about how ridiculous it is to worship idols, but he's also talking about how we need to be careful of the conscience of others, of the fact that others are observing us. We're showing an example, and people may think we're doing something wrong. We may, we may imply or infer through our actions that we're doing something that's violating the Torah, which really doesn't violate the Torah, but we need to be aware of their conscience and the fact that we need to consider what are they thinking, and we need to be more careful to keep from causing our brothers and sisters to stumble due to their lack of more, more intimate, more detailed Torah understanding. we got to be aware of what other people are thinking when we do something. That's, that's one of the main thrusts of this particular discussion in Paul's epistles. The oral Torah quote, however, regarding food sacrificed to idols, which I'll provide, will be shown following the quote from Paul's epistle, and it approaches the issue from a much more technical perspective. The reader of that material, the reader of the oral Torah material I will be quoting, was and is people who are far more aware of the details of Torah. Therefore, it could be more technical. It doesn't have to be simplistic. Thus, what we have in Paul's epistle to the Corinthians and the quotes from Judaic oral Torah is the same teaching approached from two distinctly different directions. 
we will first consider the Apostle Paul's epistle to Corinthians. I will quote from the NET Bible translation, and within the written material you can find on the website, which in this, in this case it's, it's Oral Torah Part 2 in the written material on the website, within that material I will include in red italicized letters and within brackets some of the useful translator notes that are found within the NET Bible translation, since they assist in understanding Paul's message. However, since you're listening to this, you're not reading it, I will simply explain those translator notes as I read, where necessary. I may not explain them all because it, it would just generate more confusion. So, we'll be reading first from 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1-13, through 13, then from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14-33, through 33, and then from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, which basically is a continuation after verse 33 of chapter 10. So first, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. With regard to food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Now, here's a translator note, and this is actually rather important, and you'll see this in some of the more modern translations. You will not see this in the King James Version. What's happening here, and the scholars have now become aware of this, Paul often uses slogans and terms and idioms that his audience uses. Okay, in this case, his audience are the Corinthians. Corinthian was a very pagan city, a very sensual city at that time, very powerful location actually and city, very important city. And the Corinthians would often hear these these slogans. We all have slogans even today like in America, there are all kinds of idioms and slogans. I don't know what half of them means because I'm some I'm an old dude and I don't know what <laughs> what all the a lot of the language and a lot of the lingo used means, but anyway, there are slogans people use. One of the slogans in this case is the fact that we all have knowledge. And Paul, as it says in the translator notes, I'll, be, I'll just read the note for this. Translator note, we all have knowledge. Here, and in verse 4, Paul cites certain slogans the Corinthians apparently used to justify their behavior. And as far as their behavior, he's talking about their behavior in chapter 6, verses 12 through 13, chapter 7, verse 1, and chapter 10, verse 23, which will be included within what I'll be reading here. Okay, so they're using certain slogans to, to justify the behavior. And Paul agrees with their slogans in part, but corrects them to show how the Corinthians have misused these ideas. In other words, Paul lures himself down to his audience's level. He tries to communicate in a manner that his audience will understand. And therefore, he uses their own lingo, their own slogans, their own, the way they see things, he will use in correcting them in how they should see things. He, he's excellent. I mean, his, his method of communication was, was excellent. So that's basically the translator note. And, and, and so take note of that. I'm not going to point it out elsewhere. But when I read one of the slogans, 
I will read it in such a way that you'll know that I'm, I'm, uh, it's a quote. For instance, with regard to food sacrifice to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. When I, when I read it like that, I'm reading a slogan, all right? So if when I use that, that tone within the, within the reading, I'm reading a slogan within the passages that we're going through, all right? That, will, that way I don't have to stop and say, well, this is a slogan, blah, 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 and it just it causes us to stumble through these, these verses, and I don't really want to stumble through the verses. So I'm going to try to read it in such a way that you know you will know I'm reading a slogan, and that whenever that happens, it's not actually a teaching from Paul. It's a slogan that he then uses to teach from that he may or may not agree with. Okay, The, the slogan he may not agree with entirely. And that's one of the mistakes Christians make. Also, they don't know this. They'll read something from 1 Corinthians like here, and whatever is said, they think it's a direct teaching from the Apostle Paul. And it may not be a teaching at all. In fact, it may be something he disagrees with, but he's using the slogan and then bouncing off that slogan to try to prove a point. So, let me continue, and I'll comment on this more later. And by the way, this particular part's probably going to be this uh, part nine. It may very well be longer than others because there's a lot of material, a lot of very interesting things within what I'll be reading here that need to be brought out, that need to be shown and discussed. Because these, this reading from First Corinthians, actually encapsulates. A number of problems that are found within Christianity in, in their method of interpretation. All right. So, and I want to try to bring out several of those, most of those issues, and make people aware of, of how careful you need to be when you study the New Testament and the correct context that needs to be applied when studying the New Testament. So, this is probably going to be this oral tour part nine, maybe one of the longer parts, and I, but I hope you stick with me. So let me start over in my reading of 1 Corinthians. And, and again, I'm stumbling through this because, frankly, it's, this is rather technical what we're going to discuss. So I need to try to clarify it, so forgive me for stumbling through it. So 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. With regard to food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If someone thinks he knows something, he does not yet know to the degree that he needs to know. But if someone loves God, he is known by God. With regard then to eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol in this world is nothing and that there is no God but one. If, after all, there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we live. And, note the distinction, one Lord, Yeshua Messiah, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. Now I'll pause there. He talks about there are many gods and many lords. He's talking about there are many pagan idols. Okay, He, he doesn't mean there are many gods. That, that's, he doesn't literally mean that. Okay? That's why he calls them so-called gods. And there are many gods and many lords. He's talking about there's so many different pagan idols out there. And, and there were and there are. 
okay? He's not talking about there are actually many gods, okay? Also briefly, verse 6 is actually a direct rebuke of the Trinity. It is a direct rebuke of the idea that Messiah is God in the flesh because it says, yet for us there is one God, and what is that God? The Father, from whom are all things and for whom we live. And, note the distinction, one Lord Yeshua Messiah, through whom are all things and through whom we live. That is a clear distinction there. It clearly illustrates Yeshua is not God, but I won't go into detail on that. There is a separate podcast that addresses that, and it actually uses that verse among others. All right, continuing with Paul's epistle to the Corinthians um, in chapter 8, verse 7. But this knowledge is not shared by all. And some, well, let me go with back to verse 5. If, after all, there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we live, and one Lord, Yeshua Messiah, through whom are all things and through whom we live. But this knowledge is not shared by all. And some, by being accustomed to idols in former times, Eat this food as an idol sacrifice, and their conscience, because it is weak, is defiled. Now, what he's talking about there is, notice, some people were accustomed to idol worship. Okay, these were pagans, they're newbies, they're infants in Messiah, they're learning. Okay, so they're fresh out of the pagan world. So they still got those stains of paganism. They don't know Torah. They need to be taught, okay? They're accustomed to idols in former times, okay? And that's why it says this knowledge is not shared by all. There are people who don't understand yet that there is one and only one God, okay? They don't know that because they're used to worshiping idols. But now they're being brought in, they're being, they're being basically taught, and they're coming into a knowledge of the faith of Yeshua as Messiah and, and of Torah, so Paul's talking here about the people that are the newbies, the infants that need to be taught. So again, but this knowledge is not shared by all. And some, by being accustomed to idols in former times, eat this food as an idol sacrifice. And their conscience, because it is weak, meaning they don't know very much, they're still learning and don't know how to discern things, because it is weak, their conscience is defiled. Now, food, continuing with verse 8, now food will not bring us close to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. But be careful that this liberty of yours, now he's talking here about people who are more knowledgeable, but be careful that this liberty of yours does not become a hindrance to the weak. In other words, be careful, reader of this epistle, that the 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 liberty you have because of your greater understanding of Torah, be careful that you're not actually causing, putting a stumbling block. You're not being a hindrance to those who are weak, to those who do not understand these things, to those who are fresh out of idolatry or maybe even still in idolatry. Okay? So, but be careful this, that this liberty of yours does not become a hindrance to the weak. For if someone weak sees you who possess knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience be strengthened or built up to eat food offered to idols? Notice what, see, so that, that's what I'm referring to in verse 9. 
Be careful this liberty of yours does not become a hindrance to the weak. For if someone weak sees you who possess knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience be strengthened to eat food offered to idols? In other words, you got to be careful because you, you may actually strengthen a person's concept and cause them to think that they can eat food offered to idols, which, of course, they shouldn't be doing. Verse 11, So by your knowledge, the weak brother or sister, for whom Messiah died, is destroyed. Now, I'll stop here for a moment. He's, so what he's saying there, notice he says they're just, they'll be destroyed. Now, what he's, that's a very powerful implication there. So that right there is saying, you don't do this. Idol worship is, worship is damnable. That's what he's referring to. It's damnable. So if you're not careful, you may cause people to think they can participate in idolatrous practices, such as eating food that has been offered to idols, knowingly offered to idols, and you may be contributing to their idolatry. So if you do that, to people for whom Messiah died, as he says, you're destroying them. Again, verse 11. So by your knowledge, that is the fact that you know things and you technically realize you're not actually transgressing Torah, well, they don't know Torah. They don't know these things. So by your knowledge, the weak brother or sister for whom Messiah died is destroyed. Continuing, if you sin against your brothers or sisters in this way, and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Messiah. See, that's a powerful statement, too. Another statement that illustrates we must be very careful in the um, example that we show others as they observe us. Again, as he said, if you sin against your brothers or sisters in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Messiah. For this reason, continuing, for this reason, if food causes my brother or sister to sin, I will never eat meat again so that I may not cause one of them to sin. And that ends the quote from chapter 8. And it, you know how it, he ends it with, if food causes, in other words, if, if the very act of eating is going to cause my brother or sister, my weak brother or sister, the one who is less under who is less taught, the one who is less knowledgeable of truth, if what I do, even eating, causes them to sin, I'm not going to eat, at least not around them. I won't even, I will never eat around them. That He's being sarcastic there a little bit, but that shows the, the point he's trying to make. Again, for this reason, if food causes my brother or sister to sin, I will never eat meat again so that I may not cause one of them to sin. In other words, be very careful about how you live out your life in Messiah. Be very careful because you don't want to cause people to stumble who are less knowledgeable than you. Now, reading from chapter 10, verses 14 through 33, and then immediately jumping into chapter 11, verse 1, which follows chapter 33. So then, my dear friends, Flee from idolatry. Now, see, right there, you, there's no doubt Paul is against, against idolatry. Flee from idolatry. Have nothing to do with idolatry. And I will comment a bit later on how Christianity very definitely does not, does not take Paul's advice here. Give you a hint. Two words. 
Christmas, Easter, and I will expand upon them later. Flee from idolatry, as Paul says, meaning do not have anything to do with it. Do not touch it. So chapter 10 again. So then, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I am speaking to thoughtful people. Consider what I say. Is not the cup of blessing that we bless a sharing in the blood of Messiah? Is not the bread that we break a sharing in the body of Messiah? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one bread. Look at the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices partners in the altar? Now, what he's talking about there is elsewhere you talk, you know, you'll find in in the New Testament, we are all one in Christ. We're one in Messiah. That is a Judaic thing. (laughs) That by itself is pure orator. The concept of the oneness of God, the oneness of humanity, the oneness of Israel, that comes directly from Torah, but even more strongly from oral Torah. And that the one body, the body of Messiah, the body of Christ, you'll hear people say in Christianity, that is pure oral Torah. That is raw oral Torah. It comes from Jewish oral Torah, the body of Messiah. It is basic oral Torah. It actually comes from Hoshkafa. We all come from Adam. Mankind itself is one body. You have the various souls that sprang from at, et cetera, et cetera. I won't go into it. It gets deep. But that itself, the phrase, the body of Christ, comes directly from oral Torah that existed then and that they knew about. Yeshua knew about it. All the apostles knew about it. It was common knowledge. So he's talking about the oneness of Messiah that is demonstrated through sharing the body of Messiah by breaking bread and the oneness of Israel that is, that is demonstrated by, by sacrificing and sharing at the altar, okay? That's what he's talking about, the oneness situation, okay? So now, continue with, with uh, I'll, I'll go back to, I'll go back to verse 17. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one bread. Look at the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices partners in the altar? Am I saying that idols or food, continuing with Paul, am I saying that idols or food sacrificed to them amount to anything? No. I mean that what the pagans sacrifice is to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be partners with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot take part in the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or are we trying to provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he is? So what he's saying there is when you take part in idolatrous practices, and Christians, you need to understand this. When you take part in idolatrous practices, in this case, in this case, basically the fact that they were... uh, making offerings to demons and not to God, etc., when you take part in idolatrous practices, you are taking part with, you are making yourself one with the idol. The idol. Again, Christmas, Easter, Christians, wake the heck up. 
That is raw paganism. I don't care if you say, oh, well, we've reinterpreted it. Now we make, we make, we know Christmas is purely pagan garbage, but we've redefined it as the birth of Jesus, which, by the way, it isn't. He wasn't born then. Tammuz was born then, a pagan ritual. And then, oh, Easter, yeah, well, we've just redefined it now. It's no longer Ishtar. It's no longer the pagan goddess of sex who came down who came down and crashed in, in an egg and popped out. It's not the bosomy and, and turned a, a, a rabbit into an egg, you know, a, a bird into an egg-laying rabbit. I mean, there's so much paganism to Easter. Easter and Christmas are raw, pure, unadulterated, pagan practices. They come directly from fundamental idolatry. What, is, what does Paul say? Do not participate, because when you do, you are becoming one with those pagan idols. When Christians participate in Easter or Christmas, no matter how they try to sugarcoat it, they are becoming one with idols. They are directly violating the prohibition against idolatry, and yet they don't care because they like it. It's fun. I like Christmas. I want to get up. I want my Christmas tree, which another pagan ritual, another pagan idol. They don't care. They don't care. I'll stop here, but I'm going to jump back into this. You cannot, as he says, Paul, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot take part in the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Are we, or are we trying to provoke Jehovah to jealousy? Are we really stronger than he is? I guess most Christians think they are because they don't care that he said have nothing to do with it. Then continuing with Paul's epistle. Everything is lawful. See, this is another quote from a, a saying, a slogan, and Paul's going to explain it. Everything is lawful, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is lawful, but not everything builds others up. So there he's saying, you know, you, you may, you're saying everything is lawful, but Paul says, but wait a minute. Oh, excuse me. Yeah, you're right. You're not going to be arrested for doing this. Nobody's going to stop you. I mean, it's obviously lawful. The lawful there who's referring to is is a civil law. In that case, that's not referring to Torah law. It's civil law. They, they say, well, everything is lawful, meaning that anything they wanted to do, they could do. There, it was pagan Corinth, the pagan Roman Empire. So basically, it's like today in America. Yeah, it's lawful now for you to have homosexuals marry one another. But guess what? God doesn't like that. There are things that are done in society that are lawful. You're not going to be arrested. But that doesn't mean they're good. And that's what Paul's referring to here. And here it's referring in the, in, in the area of eating food knowingly offered to idols. It's lawful. They could do it. They did it in Corinth, but it's not good. So here again in 23. <clears throat> Everything is lawful. But not, or, or everything is lawful, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is lawful, but not everything builds others up. Do not seek your own good, but the good of the other person. Eat anything. Now, this is where, listen closely. Eat anything that is sold in the marketplace without questions of conscience. For the earth and its abundance are the Lord's. If an unbeliever invites you to dinner and you want to go, eat whatever is served without asking questions 
of conscience. Note, without asking questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this is from a sacrifice, do not eat because of the one who told you and because of conscience. Now, what he's talking about there, in Corinth, and actually archaeologists have proven this, the marketplace where they, were, where they sold food, they've, they've noticed it was, it was very near pagan, pagan temples. It, it, they, the marketplaces were close to places of pagan worship. Why? Because what would happen is someone would go into a pagan temple, they'd make an offering. Let's say it's a lamb or a goat or whatever. They'd make an offering, say a lamb, and the priest would take the offering, they do whatever they do, and they offer it. But they don't necessarily burn it or anything like that. Once the priest would take it, they may then go sell that offering that was made. The offering to the idol was made. They now will sell that in the marketplace for profit. Okay, So it was possible to find meat in the marketplace of lambs and goats and things that had been offered to idols. So what Paul is saying here is don't ask the question. In other words, he says, eat anything that is sold in the marketplace without questions of conscience. What he means of conscience is, <clears throat> excuse me, don't ask the question. Because if you don't ask the question, you won't know. All right? You won't know that the meat is offered to idols. You will be innocent of eating the food sacrificed to idols. Now, I'm going to get in that more later and show how that exactly matches what is taught in our Torah. But that's what Paul is referring to here. He's not saying you can eat anything you want. He's not saying that. Christians read this, this these epistles, and they use it to support their anti-Torah teaching that you can eat anything you want. You can eat pig, you can eat catfish, you can eat shrimp, you can eat craw crawfish, you can eat bugs, you can, whatever you want to eat. They, the, basically, the food laws of Torah, Christianity often uses these passages to say they no longer apply, to say that the Torah is abolished. That is not what Paul is saying at all, okay? I'll get on that. Uh, let me finish this reading, then I'll, just, I'll uh, explain that further. So, Paul says, again, eat anything that is sold in the marketplace without questions of conscience, for the earth and its abundance are Yehovah's, or the Lord's. If an unbeliever invites you to dinner and you want to go, eat whatever is served without asking questions of conscience. In other words, eat whatever they serve. Don't worry about it. But, as he says in the next verse, but if someone says to you, this is from a sacrifice, do not eat. Why? Because now you know. Now you know this is from a sacrifice. Because of the one who told you and because of conscience. Okay? Now then he goes on with verse 29 and following. And these verses, these passages are among the ones that are most misinterpreted. People read these, and they, particularly these verses I'm about to read, and they think that, there, there you go, we can eat whatever we want. Paul said it, Paul said it, we can eat whatever we want. So they're a bit confusing, but I will explain them. 
So again, verse, verse 28, But if someone says to you, this is from a sacrifice, do not eat because of the one who told you and because of conscience, that is your own conscience. Continuing, I do not mean yours, but the other person's. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I blamed for the food that I give thanks for? So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Do not give offense, that is, do not cause to stumble. Do not give offense to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I also try to please everyone in all things, I do not seek my own benefit, but the benefit of many, so that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ or Messiah. Okay, at this point, it's useful to present a basic, fundamental understanding people need to have as they're reading the New Testament. What is that understanding? Cultural context. When Paul here is referring to foods and implies you can eat whatever is placed before you, it is important to remember the cultural context in which he lived, the cultural context from which we obtain the New Testament. During that time, it was a given. Everyone knew, everyone who was, who was written to in the New Testament, all the apostles, they all knew the food laws. They all knew what is permissible to eat and what is forbidden. For instance, they knew you do not eat swine's flesh. You do not eat pork. They knew this. And the food laws are very clearly identified and clarified in the Torah. It's very clear. It tells you exactly what you can and cannot eat. And it's easy. It's easy to understand what you can and cannot eat. Now, Christians will say, <clears throat> excuse me, but they never repeat those. They never give those food laws in the New Testament. Therefore, we can eat what we want. Well, Christian, the reason they never give them is because they knew nobody was stupid enough to realize that you must eat biblically. It was common. It's like it's like telling it's like some having to tell someone to breathe. You don't have to tell a person to breathe. They naturally breathe. It's like telling someone they had to drink fluids or they'll become dehydrated and die. You don't have to do that because they know to drink fluids. This is exactly the same thing. They did not have to explain the food laws in the New Testament because only an idiot would violate them. Only an idiot didn't know about them. Everyone knew the food laws. There's no need for them to teach that. It's basic. As basic as it gets. you got to remember, these people to whom Paul was writing and to whom the other uh, apostles wrote generally were attending synagogues at that time. They knew the food laws. They knew to avoid certain foods. They didn't have to mention it. So here, when Paul is talking about the foods you can and cannot eat, he is not even referring at all to what everyone already knows they cannot eat. He's referring to food potentially offered to idols. And what is the food he's referring to? It also is clean food. If someone offered a pig to an idol, 
he would it wouldn't even apply because they're not going to eat it anyway. And and that is a major major problem in Christianity, a severe problem. I don't know if pastors are just idiots and stupid and don't know, or if they just intentionally are deceiving the people they teach, because they should be able, they should know that the cultural context of that day included as a fundamental basic element the biblical food laws. That is something everyone knew about. There's no need to talk about it. It's already done. Why tell people to do something that everybody already does? But people take these verses I just read, and because they ignore the context, they assume it's permitting you to eat whatever you want. That is absolute nonsense and shows a complete moronic attitude in the approach to the New Testament. The culture of the day made it clear. You do not eat unclean foods, biblically unclean foods. There is no need for the Apostle Paul to teach that because everyone knew it. Even the most the most weak, the most infantile, the, the a first day believer knows that. Everyone knew it. Therefore, don't take these verses which I just read and think that they're teaching you can eat whatever you want, and that the kosher laws, the food laws, no longer apply. That is completely false. Totally false. And unfortunately, since most Christians, well, I'll just be blunt. God tells us what we can and cannot eat. None of the apostles and Yeshua himself ever ate unclean foods. But Christians do it. Why? Because they love their food more than they love God. Just the same thing with the Sabbath. They love their their Saturday tailgate parties at the college football games more than they love God. They love their Friday night, uh, what is it, the happy hours and hooking up with people and partying. They love it more than they love God. They don't want to devote that Sabbath to God because they got things they want to do. Yeah, let's party. It's the same thing with food. They want to eat their honey-baked ham. They love their boiled shrimp. They love their fried shrimp. They want those oysters. They want that catfish. They want whatever they want to eat, and they don't care what God says. They do not care because they love themselves more than they love God and Messiah. Period. Full stop. If you eat unclean foods, you are purposely and directly contradicting the teachings of God and the example and teachings of Messiah, and don't claim to love them if you eat that stuff because you obviously do not, and you're proven to be a liar. So, okay, that was a rant. <laughs> and the same thing, remember, I, I, with Christmas and Easter, Paul says, flee from idolatry. My friend, I, I won't give, a, I won't give a, a lecture or study on it on Easter and Christmas, there is so much material out there, I don't need to. Actually, now, most Christians already know. They know that Christmas and Easter is derived from extremely pagan, demonic, idolatrous worship. They know that, and they don't care. They know a Christmas tree is based on idolatry. They don't care. God says, flee from all forms of idolatry. As Paul says within these writings, you're to not have anything to do with idolatry. And later when we get into the oral Torah parallel to this, it explains it even more carefully. 
You're not to have anything to do with it. Oh, but we've redefined it. Now Christmas is the birth of Jesus, which it isn't. He wasn't born then. And Easter is the day of his resurrection. No, that either. I mean, they, it, Paul, the, God does not say in the Torah, oh, these worship, these pagan idolatrous practices, just redefine them, call them what you want, and keep doing them. No, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say keep doing them with different explanations. He says do not do them at all. Avoid them. Flee from them. So if you're a Christian and you continue to knowingly participate in Christmas and Easter, even though you know they're pagan, once again, you prove you love Christmas and Easter more than you love God. You love Christmas and Easter more than you love Yeshua. You love you love seeing your children jump around and get all their, their toys more than you love God. You are pagan, and you got to stop claiming to be biblical because you aren't. You're a liar. You're a poser. If you want to get serious, get serious. Throw out Easter. Throw out Christmas. And Halloween have nothing to do with that. And if your church or your Christian friends who, who you know participate in those activities, avoid them. Because if you don't, stop lying and claiming to be a Christian and a follower of the Bible because you prove yourself to not care at all what the Bible teaches. Make your choice. Be a pagan idolater or be a follower of Messiah. But you cannot be both. Now, okay, that's my last rant, at least for now. <laughs> now, continuing on with the, uh, with the study. All right, so I read through the epistle to the Corinthians, chapters 8, parts of chapter 8, 8 and 10, and also the first verse of chapter 11. Now, <clears throat> please note, in what I just read, particularly in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 28, in that verse, Paul specifically and directly states, do not eat food when you know it has been sacrificed to an idol. Again, he says, but if someone says to you, this is from a sacrifice, okay, now you're being informed, right? If someone says to you, this is from a sacrifice, do not eat because of the one who told you and because of consciousness. In other words, you now know, since you know the Torah, consciously you'll be violating your conscience if you eat something you know is from an idolatrous worship practice. So he says, do not eat. Now he's making a halakhic legal statement there, a rabbinic halakhic legal statement. Do not eat food that you know, and that's the key, that you know has been offered to idols. All right. You will see that what I read for the purpose of relating to his audience, as I said, and the audience in, at this, in this instance is the citizens of Corinth, he utilized phrases that were common to their understanding with which he partially agreed. Okay? This is one of numerous examples in Scripture where we are supposed to always be aware of other, other people, even in how we communicate with them. We're to be aware of others and strive to avoid offending them or doing something that will cause them to stumble. And also, if we can, utilize what they already understand, their slogans, their mindset, 
and take from that and guide them in using their own understanding to an understanding of truth. In other words, meet them at their level and start at that point and try to bring them along to an understanding of truth. Now, the improper conduct, by the way, that they were considering that Paul is referring to here in Corinthians is practicing, or, you know, they were practicing, was the eating of food that was knowingly offered. Again, what was improper, what Paul was trying to get across, and you have to read it, but he directly states it in verse 28, chapter 10. He said the improper conduct was you are not to eat food knowingly offered, knowingly offered in a temple for idolatrous worship. Worship, excuse me. Basically, in Paul's, unfortunately, typically verbose, very wordy manner, he was clearly teaching to avoid the eating of food that was knowingly offered to an idol in a pagan temple. If you didn't know, it's okay. And again, note, I said knowingly offered. This is a very important point. If it was not known to have been officially and literally offered to an idol, then it is permissible to eat, according to Paul. And when I say officially and literally, I mean you've given it to the priest, they've done whatever they do, and the offering has been done. It's it's taken place. It is completed. In other words, the pagan offering goes through the complete process of being presented to the idol, all right? That is what is Paul is talking about. If that has not happened, you can eat it, all right? So even if it was carried into a pagan temple for the purposes of being offered, but the offering did not actually occur, then the food could still be eaten. Only when it was known that the pagan offering of the food had been accomplished was the food forbidden to eat. The status of the food, whether it could be eaten or not, changed when the pagan offering of the food was completed and fully carried out. That is why Paul says that we can eat whatever is offered so long as we do not know that it was offered to idols. Therefore, it's like a don't ask, don't tell policy. If we do not ask and we do not know, then we are permitted to eat with a clear conscience. You will see this detail regarding when the food was permitted or forbidden to be eaten. You will see how it perfectly matches oral Torah. And so it should, since Paul was an eminently schooled Torah scholar. Okay, so now let us compare Paul's statements to the more direct and slightly more technically presented discussion of food offered to idols that is found within the oral Torah of Judaism. I will be utilizing the Mishnah Torah by Rambam, or Moses Maimonides, a multi-volume work of oral Torah that is highly exalted and revered within Judaism. I mean, even to this day, the study of Mishnah Torah, the study of, of Maimonides and Rambam, is one of the primary focuses within Orthodox and Rabbinic Judaism today. He is extremely revered. He's considered one of the greatest Torah sages of all time. And Mishnah Torah, his most exalted work, his magnum opus work, 
is studied in almost virtually every synagogue or every Torah school around. It is a common, you have lessons that are scheduled on the study of the Rambam, study of Mishnah Torah. It's one of the most studied books within Judaism, Mishnah Torah. One of the best books that discusses the halakhic legalities of oral Torah that you will find. And it's frankly quite easy to read. It's actually relatively easy to read. Now, it's a 29-volume set, and I'll be quoting from the volume Hilchot Avadat Kochavim. All right? Hilchot Avadat Kochavim, or Avadat Kochavim. And there is much within that writing which deals with various aspects of idolatry. That particular volume focuses on idolatry, and it talks a lot about it, a lot about it. However, I will present only a small portion of the material from Hilchot Ovadat Chachavim. And forgive my my pronunciation, it's terrible. I pronounce Hebrew terribly. <laughs> so anyway, I'll present only a small portion of the material, specifically that portion which impacts the current topic, referring to food that was offered to idols and when it is permitted or forbidden to be eaten. All right, so... Within the written material, you'll see the quotes in italics. Of course, you can't see a quote in audio, so I'll just read it and explain it. The first statement from that book comes from chapter 7, halacha number 2, and is found on page 114, and this is the statement. Quote, It is forbidden to benefit from false deities, that is, idols, their accessories, offerings for them, notice that offerings for them, and anything made for them, as implied by Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 26, which says, Do not bring an abomination into your home. End quote. Now, they just quoted halakha, along with halakha number one, which precedes it within Mishnah Torah, serves as the foundation for all the laws discussed in chapter 7 of Hilchot Ovadat Chochavim. Since halakha one does not impact our current discussion, it is not included. Now, the teaching is very clear from oral Torah. It is forbidden to benefit from false deities or idols, idolatry, or, with respect to this discussion, it is forbidden to benefit from offerings to such pagan deities. Please note that the term offerings implies that an offering has been officially performed. Now, briefly, also notice we are, it is forbidden to benefit at all from idolatry. And Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 26, specifically and directly commands, do not bring an abomination into your home. Well, guess what you're doing, Christian, when you bring a Christmas tree into your home? You're bringing an idolatrous abomination. You're bringing something that comes directly from pagan idolatry. You're bringing it into your home. A Christmas tree is literally to God an abomination, which means detestable. God directly states, do not bring an abomination to your home. Do not bring your Christmas tree into your home. Do not bring your 
pagan ritual Christmas and Easter worship practices in your home. Do not bring those pagan Easter eggs or the rabbit into your home. It's right there in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 26. That's not even oral Torah. That is direct commandment from the written Torah, from the Bible. So now, let's continue on. We next have halakha number 3 from that writing. Quote, It is forbidden to benefit from an animal which was sacrificed to false deities in its entirety, even its excrement its bones, its horns, its hooves, and its hide. It is forbidden to benefit from it at all, end quote. Now, once again, notice, it is clearly stated that it is forbidden to benefit at all from pagan offerings. The final statement from chapter 7, which directly relates to the issue of food sacrificed to idols, is found in Halakha number 15, and it directly addresses the issue of which we're speaking. Quote, it is not forbidden, notice that, it is not forbidden to benefit from meat, wine, and fruits that were prepared, that were, notice that, that were prepared as offerings for idols, although they were brought into the temple of a false deity, they are not prohibited until they are actually brought as offerings. Once they are brought as offerings, their status changes, and they remain forever forbidden, even if they were later removed from the temple, end quote. All right. In the last quote, we begin to see the direct parallel to what the Apostle Paul taught in his epistle. So long as the offering of meat, wine, etc., was not officially performed and completed, it is permitted to partake of it. As stated, this is even true if the meat or wine or etc. had already been taken into the pagan temple. If, before being offered, it is removed from the temple, it is permissible to eat it. The actual performance of the ritual of offering the meat is where the change in status occurs. At that point, it changes from being permissible food to being forbidden food. So finally, we'll read the last quote from that writing in Mishnah Torah. And this is from chapter 8, Halakha 1. Quote, It is permitted, it is permitted to derive benefit from anything that has not been manipulated by man or that was not made by man, even though it was worshipped as a deity. Therefore, it is permitted to benefit from mountains, hills, trees, provided they were planted originally with the intent of harvesting their fruit. Springs, which provide water for many people and animals, despite their having been worshipped by pagans. It is permitted to partake of the fruits that were worshipped in the place where they grow and to partake of such an animal. Needless to say, it is permitted to partake of an animal that was set aside for the purpose of idol worship or to be sacrificed to another day. Notice that was set aside. Then continuing, when do the above statements permitting the use of an animal apply? They apply when a deed involving it was not committed for the sake of idol worship. 
If, however, any deed whatsoever was committed involving it, it is forbidden. For example, to cut one of the signs, that is the windpipe or esophagus, for the sake of an idol, of something being offered, obviously. Should one exchange it for an idol, it is forbidden. Similarly, it is forbidden for it if it was exchanged for an article that was itself exchanged for an idol, since the latter article is considered to be, quote, payment for an idol, end quote. Then he asks again, when does the above apply? Regarding one's own animal. Now notice, this is, this is important also. Regarding one's own animal. In other words, we're talking about an animal you own. If, however, one slaughtered a colleague's animal for the sake of a false deity or exchanged it for an idol, it does not become forbidden because a person cannot cause an article that does not belong to him to become forbidden, end quote. Now, notice that. And remember the food in the marketplace Paul mentioned. That was food that someone else had owned, okay? That's why Paul says, and he doesn't go into the depth of this, but that's why he says, just don't ask about it and eat whatever is there. Of course, again, we're talking about clean food already, biblically clean food. So if you see a lamb or a goat or something in the marketplace there in Corinth, just simply don't ask where it came from so your conscience won't be uh, hurt, so you won't, you won't worry about it. Just go ahead and buy it and eat it. It's not, not a problem. Why? Well, one reason why is they didn't own it. It was someone else's. And according to what I just read, someone else's animal or meat, it's okay to eat it because it doesn't apply to you. The You might say the stain of paganism the sin applies to only to the person who owns that animal. And since you don't own the animal that you're buying meat from in a marketplace, you don't have to worry about it. But Paul goes even further. Paul is actually stricter, and I will talk of this briefly. He's actually stricter than is this oral Torah. So the final quote from Mishnah Torah, once again strongly implies that until the actual ritual offering is done, the food is permissible to eat. Furthermore, the final sentence of the quote actually suggests somewhat less of a stringent requirement than what Paul teaches, since it implies that so long as the animal being offered is not your own, you can benefit from it. Paul, however, does not say that. Paul, in verse in 10.8, says, If someone says this was offered to an idol, do not eat it. Well, that's not meat that you would have owned. So Paul is saying, even if you didn't own the meat and you find out it's over to an idol, you cannot eat it. That's, that's even stricter than oral Torah. All right? So the translator's commentary, actually, on that last statement in Mishnah Torah suggests the straightforward reading may be misunderstood, and there is actually a variation of opinion providing that issue that I just talked about, about if you can eat food that actually belonged to someone else that was offered to an idol. 
Since it does not directly impact the current topic, I'm not going to delve into that. However, the thing to remember here is, again, Paul may be stricter in his interpretation, in his teaching, than is the Mishnah Torah regarding food sacrifice to idols. So, summarizing the issue of food offered to idols. This is a summary. We find that the Apostle Paul's teachings from his first epistle to Corinthians is virtually identical to what is found in the oral Torah of Judaism. I just read it in Mishnah Torah. It's almost identical, except Mishnah Torah gives the background information. It gives more depth uh, in some areas to describing food sacrifice to idols. Paul didn't give that depth because he was talking to to an audience that he needed to be more simplistic in in his discussion. But his conclusion was identical to what you find in Mishnah Torah. Any deviation between Paul and the oral Torah that may exist is trivial. Therefore, we have proof within the New Testament of yet another of the many existing connections to Jewish oral Torah. Paul and Rambam, Moses Maimonides, felt the same way about food sacrifice to idols. Paul taught, just don't ask, don't tell. If you don't know that the, that clean meat, that food was offered to an idol, buy it and eat it, and your conscience is clear. But if you're told it was actually offered to an idol, do not eat it. For your conscience sake and well, for, for their conscience sake, okay? For their conscience sake. That's what he says. He says, do it for their conscience. But if someone says to you, this is from a sacrifice, do not eat because of the one who told you and because of conscience. I do not mean yours, but the other person's. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? What does he mean by that? And I should have mentioned this earlier, but I'll mention it here. What does he mean by that? Well, we just read it in oral Torah. If the food was even offered to the idol that you find in the marketplace, if it was even offered according to oral Torah, you can eat it. Why? Because you didn't own that lamb. It cost you nothing. There was no sacrifice from you. It was someone else's property. So you're permitted to eat it, according to that Mishnah Torah statement. That's why Paul says, uh, don't do not eat it. If someone, if someone tells you this is from a sacrifice, do not eat it because of the one who told you, because of conscience, I do not mean yours, but theirs, basically. In other words, even though, and he says, for why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? See, you're, you're actually free to eat that. Again, because you didn't own that meat. Therefore, you can buy it and eat it. It wasn't your meat. So it, it's, not, it's permitted for you to eat, even if it was offered to an idol. However, if that the other person, if someone tells you this is from a sacrifice, and you eat it, you may give them the, uh, the, the wrong impression. They may think idolatry is okay because they don't understand the details of the halakha, of the oral Torah. And even though you're, you could eat it, Paul is even stricter than oral Torah, and he says do not eat it because of their conscience and because you don't want to cause them to stumble. 
So Paul's even more strict. And that's actually kind of interesting, but it's true. And another thing is funny, because Christians will read that, and even though they misunderstand it, they'll, they'll think they abide by it, and they don't realize they're abiding by implicit oral Torah, even though, again, they totally misunderstand it. All right, so there we have another example of Paul, particularly in this case from the epistles of Paul, that directly parallels oral Torah, directly. Therefore, oral Torah is obviously endorsed in the New Testament. It's even discussed. It's even taught. The New Testament writings are filled with basic teachings also found in Judaism's oral Torah and could be more enormously more useful and instructive for Christians, that is, the New Testament, if they would study Jewish thought to determine the correct intent of much within the New Testament that is wrongly interpreted by their Torah ignorant, incompetent Christian leaders. The New Testament was not, is not, and never will be official holy scripture on the level of the Tanakh, a fact that I prove in a separate discussion that can be found in these podcasts. However, the New Testament can be, and in my opinion, very definitely is a form of oral Torah or verbal teachings, as I've said numerous times in this discussion. The New Testament is oral or verbal teachings that were written in letters and various other documents of communication to edify and to instruct the original Torah-centric, Torah-focused, pro-Torah followers of Yeshua. Therefore, it is indeed quite odd and profoundly hypocritical for Christianity to claim that it rejects oral Torah even though the very New Testament they revere is a form of oral Torah that is largely based upon and often utilizes established Jewish-based oral Torah found within Rabbinic Judaism. My friend, the New Testament is a form of oral Torah. Period. It is. Moreover, it is largely composed of precisely the same oral Torah in many places that can be found within Rabbinic Judaism. It's the same teachings. People, wake up. You have to, you must understand the cultural context of the New Testament, as I said earlier. You must understand what they thought, how they felt, how, how they were all embracing Torah. And here we see they were even embracing a lot of the oral Torah. Now, this will conclude part nine, and I'm sorry, I said early on, this was going to be probably one of the longer ones. And we've gone almost an hour and 20 minutes. I'm sorry for that. But there wasn't a good place to stop and pause, so I just pushed through it. Now, in part 10, we will begin premise number four, which is entitled, Further Evidence of Oral Torah Found in Scripture. So we'll continue on. I'll continue providing evidence of oral Torah that you can see in the written Bible. It will be evidence that directly supports oral Torah, and we're going to find it in the written Bible, the written Torah. So 
Please come back for part 10. Again, I apologize for this lengthy audio, and uh, but I thank you for listening. I ask that you please, you may need to listen to this one a couple of times because it does get very technical in the discussion of the Apostle Paul's writing to the Corinthians, but I, I did about the best I could. <laughs> it's a technical issue, but there I prove that Paul was actually directly presenting established Jewish oral Torah that he had learned as a Pharisee, he was giving it over and teaching it to and advancing it to the Corinthians in his letter to Corinth. So thank you for listening and goodbye.